Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 26, verses 57 through 75. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witness? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fist. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? Now Peter was standing outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl came and said to him, those who were there. This man is with Jesus of Nazareth. He again denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Amen. Yeah, glad you're with us today. And especially if you are a guest first time, you must really have wanted to be here today. So thank you for that. It's going to be great. You know, America loves its legal dramas, doesn't it? Don't we? Yeah, we love our legal dramas. We love movies about courtroom scenes, right? Uh, You think of To Kill a Mockingbird or A Few Good Men or Amistad, or classics like My Cousin Vinny, things like that. Yeah, we love legal drama TV shows, you know, Ally McBeal, Law and Order, the list goes on. Love legal books, all that John Grisham stuff. Well, why? Well, I think probably because more than anything that legal dramas are just that. They're dramatic, right? There's high stakes, there's tension, there's behind the scenes wheeling and dealing, you know, there's sort of the good cop, bad cop kind of thing. There's uh, the high stakes again, legal structures, power structures, and certainly all of that and more is present here today in the trial of Jesus Christ. He's on trial for his life here in the final hours of his life, and here in this passage, Jesus isn't just on trial, but in a dramatic twist, as we're going to see, he actually gets called to take the stand in defense of his own life. Today, I want to look at four parts of the trial of Jesus Christ. First, we're going to look at the motive, the motive behind 
the folks who accuse him, to the charge that's brought against him. Third, his response. And fourth, the verdict. Verdict that's pronounced. So let's go through these in order. Definitely a sobering passage. Let's take a look at it. And number one, look at the motive of the people who accuse him. And of course, anyone who ever goes on trial goes on trial because they have an accuser. Someone's accused them of something. Who were Jesus' accusers and what was their motive for bringing him to trial? Well, let's see. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Why? So that they might put him to death. And there it is. There it is. They wanted to kill him. That's their motive. So what did they do? They went around looking for false stories about him. And as bad and as corrupt as this whole thing is, as these jurors are, I actually think, though, these people are reacting to Jesus more or less rightly, and here's what I mean, because do you know what they're not doing here? They're not ignoring him. They're not ignoring Jesus. Like we do sometimes with 2,000 years of history and culture between them and us. As a matter of fact, of course, no one in Jesus' lifetime ever ignored him. People worshipped him. They followed him. They hated him. But no one ever said, oh, Jesus, what a nice man heard so much about him you know no even though these people his accusers respond with legal corruption I think though at least they're responding with emotional integrity because they can't take him anymore and they put him on trial why it's because that's what Jesus does to people he forces you to put him on trial in your own life and ask yourself your own motive for doing so. And I want to suggest to you today that I think that this is exactly what still goes on in every human heart, in every culture, when it comes to the controversial person of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, what? Well, that's going to mean something, right? If he is God who's come and who will judge us, as he claims in a bit, and we'll look at that, that changes everything. And so I think we realize that it makes us get all squirmy and kind of feels weird and awkward. And so we put him on trial and we look for a reason to get rid of that feeling. And so let me just real quick give you In the same vein as these accusers had, three motives I think we have today in our culture, in our own lives, three motives we have for putting Jesus on trial in our own lives, in our own culture. Let's look at him here. We go, there's an intellectual motive. That's the first one. I think people many times have an intellectual motive. And let me give you one. Uh, Anne Rice, you may have heard that name. Of course, the famous novelist, famous for writing Interview with the Vampire, which is the movie that's famous for having both Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt in it. Uh, Some years uh, later, decided she was going to write a a novel about the life of, of, and include Jesus Christ as a character in it. And like all good novelists, she began to research his life and research the time period and history. And she was a completely secular person. She did not believe in Christianity at all. And when she began to research the existing research about uh, Jesus from leading minds and scholars, New Testament scholarships, written at major academic institutions, she said she was taken aback by how skeptical about him they were, how hostile towards Jesus many of these leading minds and professors were when, they, when she compared it to every other field of historical research. And here's what she wrote later in a memoir of hers. 
She said, I discovered that so many of these scholars who had devoted their lives to New Testament scholarship disliked Jesus Christ. Some pitied him as a helpless failure. Others sneered at him. Some showed outright contempt. I had never come across this in any other field of research. People who go into Elizabethan studies are not out to prove Queen Elizabeth was a fool. They don't make snickering remarks about her or spend their entire careers trying to pick apart her historical reputation. And yes, of course, a scholar might study a villain, but even then they usually argue for his or her place in history. But in general, scholars do not spend their lives in the company of a historical figure whom they openly despise. And yet, these New Testament scholars detested and despised Jesus Christ. And of course, you know why this is, don't you? Let's just get down to it. It's because if the claims of Elizabeth I are right or wrong or true or false, they really don't matter. They don't affect the way you live. But if the claims of Jesus Christ to be the Son of God from heaven are true, it changes everything. That's why. I think sometimes we have an intellectual motive for putting God on trial. Second, I think sometimes we have a moral motive, a moral motive. And let's uh, see uh, what this can be, what what I mean by this. Uh, Right after World War II in Germany, the German people began to catch on to the the atrocities of the Holocaust and the aftermath of that. And of course, they began to feel a sense of collective guilt in their own culture. They began to ask, how could this happen on our own watch? And in the middle of that kind of, you know, feeling and and, and cultural uh, day there was written a play called The Sign of Jonah. And in the, in the Sign of Jonah, it discusses the German people's sense of collective guilt. And in The Sign of Jonah, it actually talks about a trial that they begin to put people on because they realize we've got to blame somebody for this. Someone's got to take the fall and take the blame for what's happened in the Holocaust. And at first, you see they begin to put the average person on trial in a courtroom. And the average person says, no, we're going to pass the bucket. It wasn't our fault. It was the soldier's fault, right? It was the guard's fault. Uh, they were the ones who did this. And then they get the soldiers up there. And those soldiers say, no, it wasn't us. It wasn't really us. We were just following orders. The blame belongs to the people who are the military commanders. And they bring the military commanders in and they pass the buck through. They say, no, we were just following whoever was at the top. But then they began to realize, wait a minute, there's someone we actually can put on trial here. For all this, there's someone we can blame. It's God. We can blame God. They put God on trial here for all the evil in the world they, because they are offended at the evil and the suffering in the world. They put God on trial and they sentence him and dismiss him from their culture. What they do. And here is what the verdict reads. They wrote, let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him become homeless and hungry and thirsty like the folks in the camps. And let him die. And when he dies, let him be disgraced and ridiculed. Whew. Isn't that amazing, right? I mean, they look out, right? They see evil in the world and they say, "Mm, God could have stopped it, but he didn't. So the whole thing isn't our fault. We had nothing to do with it. It's really on him. I think sometimes we look out of the world We struggle with evil and suffering and we say, hmm, it's really on God. And we dismiss him from our lives because of our own pain many times. Third, I think sometimes we have a a different kind of motive. Sometimes I think we have a personal motive for putting Jesus on trial. And maybe you're not like Anne Rice or those folks in Germany and 
Maybe the trial that you're putting God on today isn't just intellectual or moral. Maybe it's personal. What do I mean? Well, look in the passage at what's going on with someone named Peter. Because Peter here, he's supposed to be one of Jesus' closest disciples, right? He's supposed to be the leader of that little group. But Matthew here shows us something amazing. Matthew shows us that while there's this trial going on on the inside of that house, Caiaphas' house, there's actually another kind of trial going on outside the house in Peter's heart. Look at it. It says, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean, but he, what, denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're talking about. So here, Jesus is on trial in Peter's heart. And this time, three times actually, Peter finds Jesus guilty of asking too much of him. Asking too much of him. It's too much for Peter to be associated with Jesus. Too dangerous, too painful. Jesus was a nice idea to him until the stakes got too high in his life. I was actually reading an internet article this week about churches, people's experience in church to make sure we're doing a good job here for you all. And uh, people have made all kind of comments about churches and their experience, but then somebody, random dude, posted this, and it was fascinating. He said, he said I grew up in church until I turned 12, and club soccer killed all that, end quote. He said, now I'm grown up, and I don't know what to do with the idea of God or faith. How about that? Yeah, he says soccer killed his faith. But what he should have said was, my parents killed my faith because no 12-year-old ever drives themselves to games, do they, on a Sunday? No. But either way, the point is, like for Peter, the cost to be associated with Jesus for that family was too high, right? Cost was too high. And it was for me at another point in my life. Uh, I grew up in church, as you may know, and I grew up knowing all about Jesus, knew the commandments and the books of the Bible in order, and I still do. I'm happy to prove that to you if you want to come up and ask me to prove my expensive Christian schooling from my childhood. Thank you. I knew entire Bible chapters from memory, and I'd actually get to win, and this is going to take you, some of you way back, used to be able to win a dollar a week in Sunday school. Something called sword drills. Some of you grew up in church in the 80s, sword drills. And the idea of a sword drill was a teacher would call out some sort of, you know, forsaken Bible passage like Nahum or Habakkuk or something. And you had to be the first person to find it and look it up and read it. And if you did it, you got 25 cents. So that you spin that wheel four times. Hey, easy church money, right? For a kid who grew up in Christian school, a dollar a week. But when I got to high school, things began to change. Chasing girls, being popular, sports, pride, ego, these things and more all began to diminish, began to chip away at any sense I wanted to have of being associated with Jesus. And then when people ask, but aren't you a Christian? Don't you, don't you like go to that church? Don't you, didn't you used to talk about the Bible? I would say, what are you talking about? Like Peter, more or less, I don't even know the man, see, When it came time to decide whether it was worth it to follow Jesus in a public setting, public school, the cost was too high. Jesus was found guilty of asking too much. But the point is, we all have our reasons, right? Intellectual, moral, personal. We find him guilty of being too hard to believe in first, or maybe too absent in the world second, or too inconvenient to follow third. The point is, Jesus, my thesis is today, is really still on trial in every person's life. What about you? 
What's the verdict? Now, before you answer that, let's ask, actually, what was he originally on trial for? What was the charge their culture, those people in that day brought against him? Let's look at that. Number two, the charge. Here it is. We saw last week Judas Iscariot saunters in to the garden with an armed mob to forcibly arrest the man of peace, Jesus, right? And of course, if you are, if you're arresting someone in theory, you ought to have a charge to bring, rather something that person ought to at least allegedly have done. But you can see from the beginning, the odds of Jesus getting a fair trial are slim and none. Why? Well, let's look. It says, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were what? Gathered. Together, what's going on here? Well, first of all, you can see from the passage, this trial is happening when? At night. It's not happening during the day when it was supposed to happen. It's behind, literally, closed doors in a person's house, not in a public place. And the judge and the jury are already assembled, waiting to receive the accused man. For all appearances, looks like Jesus is like a bone here about to be tossed to a pack, hungry animals. He doesn't have a chance. So what happens next? Well, because the whole thing, it's sort of funny, is actually bungled, they have trouble finding witnesses who will agree to anything. They can't even get two people to lie the same. Two people to collude behind the scenes to agree to bring false testimony. But then it says they finally get their act together, and later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So the initial charge here is that Jesus said he was going to destroy the Jewish temple, the center of their community. Now, if he had said that and made that threat, that would be not just a threat of vandalism, but actually of terrorism because the temple was the center of the community. It would be like an attack against the state, like someone threatening to blow up the White House. Or Pentagon, you see. It's serious stuff. But Jesus never said he was going to destroy the temple. He only predicted it was going to be destroyed, and it was. So the point is, they're twisting his words here, but they can't really get it to stick. But now here is where the trial turns. Because Jesus stays quiet, he doesn't respond to the false accusations, and the high priest, the guy running the trial has had enough and he wants to get down to business and he finally bottom lines Jesus and asks him the question he thinks is going to get Jesus in trouble. He asks him this question. He says, he interrupts the whole thing. He says, I adjure you by the living God. He's saying, swear to me, tell the truth. I've got to know this. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Now, pause, because there's something actually Caiaphas is asking is something he's not asking here. He's actually here. This you got to catch this. He's not asking whether or not Jesus believes he's divine. And here's why: that would be beyond his imagination. The Jews were so monotheistic; they didn't have this kind of stuff happening. Not like the Greeks or the Romans, who you know their gods came down and merged with human people. That was a pagan, offensive idea. They didn't believe their god could ever become a man. The high priest here, he's not not asking about Jesus' divinity. He is asking about whether or not Jesus believes he is the Messiah, the Christos, the anointed, the Jewish human deliverer. Sometimes human figures, Old Testament, were called a son of God, like David was, King David. 
to signify closeness and nearness of relationship to God. But you can see from Caiaphas' question, he's asking, tell us, Jesus, whether you think you're like the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish King. Oh, and this is a loaded question, right? A loaded question. Because the Jews were under Roman occupation. They had a foreign king, Caesar. And if Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah, the Jewish king, they can now accuse him of a different charge, treason. The point is, Caiaphas is pressing for a charge that bears and carries the death penalty. Are you the Jewish king and Messiah, he asks. That's the charge. What will Jesus say? Number three, here's his response. Jesus says this, and it's incredible. Jesus finally speaks. He says to him, You said it yourself, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What's this? Here, Jesus is not just saying, yeah, but he's going way beyond a simple, yeah, because that whole clouds and power thing right there references to 1 Daniel 7, Old Testament place where a mysterious and divine figure is given power to judge the world. And also do Ezekiel 1, where the clouds of heaven represent the glory of God and where God judges the world from. Can you see what he's doing here? Jesus is using their own language, their own stories, their own metaphors to push all their buttons. He is in one sentence here. He's saying, yeah, I am the Messiah, but I am a greater Messiah than you could ever have imagined. He says here explicitly, I am God come to judge the earth. That's what he's saying. And you can't miss the incredible irony here because he's saying, in effect, you guys think you're judging me. But one day, I'm going to judge you. And no matter what you do to me now, one day, I'll be back. That's what he's saying. Now, again, pause. If you go online, read the internet, it's crazy that the lengths people will go to to say that Jesus never claimed to be God, that Jesus only claimed to be a human being, and they'll take that phrase right there, son of man, and they'll say, look, Jesus is only referring to his, you know, his humanity, his human side. He is the son of man, like people, you know, and yes, Jesus does use that to describe his humanity, but here he's pulling it right out of Daniel 7, and when he does, it's a claim to divinity, You say, well, where's the proof? Oh, look at what the high priest does next when Jesus says that. says, then, then, then the high priest tore his robes. That's a sign that the greatest offense had taken place. And the high priest said, he has blasphemed. Oh, see, Caiaphas is telling you he understands exactly what Jesus is claiming. He's saying, oh, you you heard it yourselves. He's claimed to be God. And it's not just a high priest who reacts here. I mean, look at the courtroom. The courtroom disintegrates. The courtroom falls apart. The jurors begin to stream out of the box and beat the accused man on trial and spit on him. Now, if Jesus were just just saying, I am the Jewish Messiah, Caiaphas and the group would have said, yeah, we thought that's what you were claiming all along. Case closed. Everybody go home. No. But look at their response to Jesus' words. They don't nod. They riot. So when scholars or your friends or critics or online folk or maybe even you say Jesus was a nice guy to follow but he never claimed he was a God to be worshipped, what you're saying there in that moment is that you're having to perform a convoluted type 
of intellectually dishonest surgery on the passage. You're having to cut out what Jesus meant and what Caiaphas said and reacted to. So let's not do to them what they never intended to be done. That's Jesus' response to the charge. He says, yes, I'm God. Come to judge the world. Wow, wow. Now, before we move on to the verdict, I want to just apply this in two ways. I think there's two kind of things we can learn and pull out of this, and I want to set those two things up with a single question. Let's ask, where is Jesus here in terms of power? It's a big question. Is he on top or is he on bottom here? Where is he? Come on. He's on where? The bottom, right? Where, and excuse me, what does that show us? I think it shows us two things. First, this shows us, it points to anyway, his sinless perfection. Here's what I mean. Because you'll notice there are a number of charges here, right? But hypocrisy is not one of them. Yeah, they said he he ate and drank with sinners. He broke the Sabbath. uh, He claimed to be able to forgive sins, but they never accused him of hypocrisy. Meaning even his enemies knew he lived a life of perfect integrity. And look at what his perfect integrity is doing to him now. Because just days before this, I think with an eye towards this trial, Jesus gathered his disciples and said, think about authority. Think about power in the world. Think about how it all runs. How all the authorities and rulers and kings of the Gentiles, how they operate. What do they do? Do they try to share power? Do they try to give it away? No, what do they do? They lord it over you. They put themselves on top. They keep you at the bottom. But he said, not so with you. In my kingdom, it's going to be a different thing. It's going to be run a different way. You want to be great? He said, be the least. Where is he now? Oh, he's beyond the least of these. He lived a life, sinless perfection, perfect integrity at his own cost, no matter what. But second, this also points us here, not just to his sinless perfection, but to his suffering posture. Because who does he identify with here? Again, it's a victim of what? An unjust legal system. It wasn't just Caiaphas' own issues, right? No, there was a whole legal system that conspired to bring him down. And even though, yeah, there were all kind of technically wrong things here, I think, I think if you would have pressed those people in Jerusalem in that day and you said, hey, did you, did you hear about that guy Jesus, right? That, that teacher guy, he was doing stuff for a while. Did you hear that? They, they, they convicted him and put him to death. What, what, do you, what do you think about that? I thought he was a good guy. I bet most of them would have said, well, he did go on trial. Our, our legal system did find him guilty. He, he must have done something to deserve it. When you look at a history, you can see people can handle a lot of stuff. And they can deal with a lot, but what causes riots, what causes backlash, unrestrained anger is when there exists <clears throat> systemic legal injustice. When the jury's rigged, when the fix is in, we know it's coming out of the courtroom before anybody goes in. That's what tears at people's humanity in a way that's indescribable. And if today, if you feel like you've been a victim of that, or someone you know has, or a member of your family, your community, Jesus is saying to you, I see you. I see you. I recognize you. And you know what? As a church, we have to do the same. We've got to say the same. Otherwise, we put ourselves in a position of having to defend the undefendable. We don't want to do that. This is showing you right here. Bad things happen, even to the innocent. Even good people get ground under the wheels of injustice. Don't believe for a second this is saying only the bad guys get convicted. 
or that the people who walk free are always innocent. Jesus suffers unjustly here, and he shows you how it breaks and dehumanizes the image of God, people's lives. I mean, don't you wish someone would have spoken up here for him? Well, we do for the least of these. We do for him. That's the charge here. Jesus, they said, we hear you claim to be the Messiah. What's his response? I am scaled to infinity. I'm God come to judge the world. All of you. That's what he says. So what, in the end, was the verdict? Number four, what is it? Caiaphas asked. He asked the group now. He asked the crowd, turns to the room in his house, and he says, behold, you now heard the blasphemy. He claimed to be God. What do you think? They answered, he deserves what? They say, death. So, so they condemn him to death. But what I want you to see is there's actually something stunning that happens as we move out of this trial throughout the rest of Jesus' life. And here's what I mean. What you'll notice, what many people have pointed out, is that the trial here spills out of the courtroom and Jesus essentially is on trial with every person he meets through the end of his life. And there are six different people, the gospel writers record, that show they are also having to deal with Jesus in their own hearts. He goes on trial in different people's lives. Look at them. Here's the thing. They all pronounce the same verdict. It's fascinating. Look, he says there's Judas. Judas finally gets it. He feels convicted. He cries out, I have betrayed, what's the word? Innocent blood. Pilate, the Roman judge, declares, I've examined him and I've found no basis for your charge against him. Pilate's wife, after a nightmare she had about Jesus, told her husband, don't have anything to do with that what? Innocent man. Fourth, Herod, the evil Jewish governor, again, according to Pilate, he cleared Jesus of any charges. There's fifth, the thief on the cross, who said this man's done nothing wrong. Then there's the Roman centurion, again, a pagan soldier, whose job it was to make sure Jesus was dead, said, surely this was a righteous man. The point is, the gospel writers are trying to show you the unanimous, unanimous testimony of every single person who encountered him outside the Jewish court. They say he was innocent. Criminals, evil rulers, soldiers all agree. So, so, so. Who's right? Who's right? Is he guilty or is he innocent? The jury, in a way, in the Bible is hung. It's kind of hung. Some say he was innocent. Others say he's guilty. What do you think? What would you say? Here's what I think. I think that all these people, the council, Caiaphas, D6, all of them miss the point in a way. In a way, they're all right and they're all wrong. And here's what I mean. Jesus did not deserve to die, showing that the Jewish court and Caiaphas got it wrong. But, but, Jesus was not innocent of every charge. On one charge, he was guilty. Jesus actually was guilty of the one real charge they condemned him for. He was guilty of claiming to be God. Wasn't put to death because he broke some law, because he insulted somebody. He was convicted on the charge of blasphemy, claiming to be God, and the evidence came from his own mouth. And so all those people, who, those six who said he was innocent, again, they're right, but they're wrong in a way because he was guilty of claiming to be God. Humanity put him on trial and condemned him for a claim to divinity. It's wrong to do but at least it's real. It's honest. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg 
or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus is still on trial in every person's life. Now remember how I said earlier I was a a kind of a Peter ride. Jesus went on trial in my life and I found him guilty of asking too much. Well, thankfully, and of course part of the reason I'm here is because Jesus in his mercy came back round and offered me, in a sense, a retrial, a chance to do it right. After high school, I went to play baseball at the University of Houston. While I was there, I met a teammate, had a teammate of mine who didn't act like all the other guys acted, didn't chase women and curse and party like this guy did. No, he lived a life of integrity day in and day out, but he wasn't weird, didn't judge the other guys. He was himself, but he loved God, and he just invited me to a Bible study, and I turned him down again and again and again, but finally he wore me down, and I win, maybe like some of you today. And what I found there in that group was a whole group of people just like him, all these athletes who had a a light in their eyes and a fire in their heart, and I began to ask him, how long have you actually been a Christian? Because it seemed like they knew the Bible so well. They loved Jesus. They had this power in their lives over sin. They were living for something and they would say, hmm, I don't know, three months, six weeks, six months. They'd say, how long? How about you, Morgan? I would say, oh, my whole life, I guess. But I knew it was a cheat. I knew I was faking it all along, but I didn't know how to get out of it. But I came back to the meeting, and one night there was this guest guy, the guest preacher, and he called me out of the crowd, and something quite literally supernatural happened to me. He called me up, and he began to say things that only God can know. No one else knew those things about me. No one else knew. And he began to say things like this. He said, God has called you to help other people break out of the trap of religion. Now, God was speaking that through him to me in the middle of all my betrayal, in the middle of all my denying Jesus, in the middle of all my weakness and backstabbing and cow, in the middle of all that, in the thought that Jesus loved me that much and he was for me and he had known me all along from my birth and he knew me even then in that moment, broke me. Oh, I began to weep and I prayed a prayer. I said, Jesus, make me new. I didn't know how to get free, but man, I wanted to be free. I wanted to be free from all my lust and all my addictions and all my lying and cheating and all that. And in a moment, Jesus came and he freed me and I walked out of that room. And I I swear to you, the air smelled different and the sky looked different. You said, that sounds real weird. I said, I was there, you weren't. Thank you, it's my story and not yours. I was different. Jesus had changed me. He changed me. And I remember the words of 2 Corinthians 5 from my Christian childhood. It said, if any person's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. Have all things become new for you today? They can. That night I got a second chance to make another verdict. I think for some of you, God's giving you that same opportunity. Opportunity today. He loves you, even though you're a Peter, right in the middle of all your stuff. He does. And from that moment, I, I couldn't, you couldn't shut me up, talk to my teammates, coaches, professors. Something changed me. Had to talk about it. 
Nothing could stay the same. What about us? What about you? What's your own verdict? Let's, let's pray. Let's go to him now and ask the same.